we are in the book of Ruth. Actually, we are wrapping it up today. We've been in a series that's been going verse by verse through the passage or paragraph by paragraph, and we're coming to the last chapter today. When we were coming to the last chapter, I was reminded of a a radio star, and he became a star in other areas, Paul Harvey. You remember his famous statement? The rest of the story. And he would tell, those of you who have no clue who he is, he would tell different stories about things that out of people's lives and out of history, and then he would bring at the very end something that was an additional thought that was very profound. And he would give us some tidbits of history we didn't know of. He would do stories like this one. In the 1880s, there was a, a movement happening in Ireland because the British uh, owners of the property, they were charging too much. And the people who were on the estates and who were doing the farming, they were being charged horrible amounts of rent. They were, um, they were under this oppressive form of businesses and business management, and they had a really bad year of crops in the 1880s. So the peoples who were under all these lords, they decided that they would form a group of uh, themselves as a group called the Land League, and they were going to try to implement some new rules, some new types of policies. And so they went to the landowners, and they asked them to reduce the rent because it was such a horrible year in the crops. And so they didn't. They just continued on saying, you're going to have to provide this much, pay this much for the land you're renting, plus do our fields. And so they decided that there was going to be one area that they were going to target in mass as a community and go after one landowner because he was one of those who was the most oppressive. And so they went to that region and they told him that we are no longer going to work your fields. We're, not, no, we're no longer going to even sell you supplies. We're not going to come. And he ended up, his family started working the fields, his wife and his daughters. And these people, wherever this owner would go, they would jeer him and they would give him a hard time. When he would go to a place to buy food, they would say, we're not going to do any food sales to you. We want nothing to do with you. And so it was their nonviolent, peaceful way of resisting. Well, that landowner, he's finally succumbed after a few weeks of that and gave into it. And he's gone down in the annals of history being famous, his last name. His first name, he was Charles, um, in fact, I forget his, Charles Cunningham. And his last name became the term that was used for this type of non-resistance. His name, Charles Cunningham Boycott. And so it became in history within a short time, boycott was what you would do to somebody that you wanted to influence. There's another twisted story that comes from history. It's not twisted, but the story has a twist. There was a fellow who was very famous in the pre-Civil War era for his acting and his stage presence. He was well known in a lot of papers. And when he was in Jersey City performing, he was there standing uh, by the train platform. And as he was standing by the platform, the train was coming in and it was moving ever so slowly, but still jerking forward. But the crowd started pressing forward. So Edwin, this actor, he saw a young man being pushed by the crowd to fall right down on the tracks a few feet in front of the train. He jumped down, picked up that young man and brought him back to the platform, saved his life. What's interesting is those two were tied together historically. The man who rescued that young man was Edwin Booth. He had a younger brother. You've heard of him. John Wilkes Booth. The young man that Edwin saved was Lincoln's son. The only one to survive, Robert Todd Lincoln, into adulthood. 
So you have these little twists that happen in history. We come to, to Ruth chapter 4, and it has twists throughout the story, but chapter 4 really gives us some of these little details that are really amazing. How there's, there's things that stand out, that pop out, that are really interesting and informative. The story, if you're unfamiliar with it and just visiting this morning with us for the first time, it's a story that takes place in the book of Judges. When every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes, the Jews therefore suffered some discipline. The discipline that God would bring upon them was going to be holding back the later and the earlier rains, and so a famine struck the land. One of the families from Bethlehem, the breadbasket of Jerusalem, by the name of Elimelech, the dad, he has a wife by the name of Naomi, he has two sons, Malon and Kilion, he decides to leave Bethlehem, leave the land that has been passed on to his, to his family generations after generation, and he moves to an area that was forbidden to move to by the, for the Jews. He moved to an area of Moab. When he goes to Moab, his sons grow up and they marry Moabite girls. But then shortly thereafter, what time, I don't know, but shortly thereafter, the dad dies. The sons end up dying. Now you have three widows. They're not sure what to do. So mom-in-law says to the two girls, go back to your own parents. I can't take care of you. I'm going to go back to my home country of Bethlehem. I hear that they don't have a famine anymore. You go back to your moms and your gods. The one girl goes back. The other girl, by the name of Ruth, who becomes the main figure of the story, she says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Your God shall be my God, and whither you go, I shall go. And so she commits herself, and she follows her mom-in-law back to the land of Israel. When they get back there, the only way that the widows take care of themselves is they go, now it's harvest season, they go at the edge of the field and they glean some of the grain that is supposed to be left for the widows who have to do some work to get their own food. And so she says, mom-in-law, you're elderly, I'll do the work for the two of us. And she goes out and she starts gleaning. And she's very caring for her mom-in-law. She's very industrious and hard-laboring. She happens to go to a field that is owned by a relative of theirs. She doesn't know this, but she goes to a field that's owned by a relative. His name is Boaz. And so while she's working the field, Boaz comes on that same day that she showed up, and he says, who's that young that girl? I've never seen her before. And they say, well, that's the Moabite girl that just came back. And so what happens is he shows some graciousness to them. They have a period over the next few weeks where they eat together. They get to know each other. And so mom-in-law, she is putting this together. He's a relative. And according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 23, 25, and Deuteronomy 25, I think it is, um, there's what's called a kinsman redeemer. That if you lost your property, you could have one of your relatives buy it back and put it back into the family lineage. And if there is somebody who was married and all the, the male lineages died off, and rather than lose the family line, the widow could, could then be married to a living relative, and that living relative would raise up the first child as if it was the deceased relative's child, so that the family line would continue. And so mom-in-law is putting this together. Boaz is such a relative. He could do this for us. He could buy back our land. He could marry my daughter-in-law and raise up children, or a child at least, so that our family name isn't lost. And so she tells her daughter, go and propose. She says, daughter-in-law, go at night, uncover his feet, so that after a hard day's work at the threshing floor, he wakes up. And when he wakes up, propose to him. 
And so she does the Sadie Hawkins thing. She goes there, she proposes, and he says, I'm game to do this. I'm interested in you, you're interested in me. I will surely do this. And so he says, I'm going to get on it right away. The next morning, now we're in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read what happens where it starts off, Then, meaning right away the next day, went Boaz to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by unto him and he said, Hey, you, that's the paraphrase, Hey, you, turn aside, sit down, he says. And he sat down. And Boaz had ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he says to the kinsman, and it goes on and it talks about how he says, We got we to do some wheeling and dealing here. And he explains what you know, that you're the closest relative. You have first dibs on buying back the land and marrying uh, Ruth. And so the story unfolds, and it ends up at the very end that Boaz and, Neo and Ruth, they get together. Ah, you know, the love story comes together. They get together, and they have the child. Their first child is a son, and that means that Naomi has a grandbaby. And you know what that means. She can spoil them crazy. Okay? And so it ends up just a wonderful story. It, you know, one of those happily ever after stories. And you say, okay, what's in this whole thing? There's in the story in chapter 4, there's the, the ceiling with the sandal, which is a twist in history. It's like, okay, you want to make a deal? Here's my shoe. Okay? And you give it to the person. Well, aren't you glad we don't do that? Okay, that's just not a way to settle a car deal. Here, have my shoe. Okay, there's that type of thing. There's this having to go and get all the, the leaders of the city together and deal with, hey, can I marry so-and-so? Aren't you glad you didn't have to go to all the city elders to propose? Well, some of you aren't so glad. You maybe maybe you, would, you think it would have turned out different. I'm not sure. But as you look through the story, there's a lot of little tidbits but I think there's two major lessons of chapter 4 as it winds down the story. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the two major lessons. One major lesson is this. God rewards those who trust in Him. God rewards those who trust in Him. Now, what that means is, let's just walk through the story again. Those who trust Him enough that they run to Him in faith. That's Ruth. She trusts him enough that she says, I'm done with my gods. I'm done with my Moabite religion. I'm turning to Jehovah God, the true God of heaven, the creator of all the earth, and I'm coming to him for forgiveness of sin. I'm no longer going to trust in my religious institutions, all those different things. I'm putting my faith and trust in God Almighty. That's when she says, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. And so she comes in faith. And if you and I want God to bless our lives, that's our first step. In the New Testament, it's called getting saved, or being born again, or being converted. It's the same word that shows up time and time again. It's the idea of putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him only to provide salvation. It is like what some of us did. Some of us here grew up in a different religious system. A religious system that said you have to trust in baptism, you have to trust in going to church, you have to trust in giving money, you have to trust in the, the spiritual leaders of the church. And you trust in all those things and maybe, maybe you'll get into heaven. But Jesus Christ is totally different. 
He says very clearly in his word, he says, These things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He talks about you shall have the gift of eternal life. That he, when you come to him, that you become in the hand of God the Father and no one can take you out. He's the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. But when we come, he gives us eternal life. Listen, my friend, if you've never come to Jesus Christ, this is a good day to do it. Put your faith and trust in Jesus who died, buried, and resurrected for you so that you could have eternal life. He is the only one that can get you into heaven. He wants to give you salvation, but you need to turn to him and ask him to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, and give you the gift of eternal life. So if you want... God to reward you. Start with the first step of trust. Trust him by turning to him in faith. There's more faith in here. There's more trust. Not only did Ruth run to him, but you see secondly that she and Boaz trusted God enough that they would do whatever he said. They would do whatever he said. What I mean by that is this. Deuteronomy 25 said that the widow, the widow could go to the relative And tell the relative, I'm available, you're the closest relative, will you marry me? She does that. With that proposal at midnight was odd for you and I in our culture, but it was biblical. She was supposed to do it. She did it. She did, even though it was risky. We talked about this here a few weeks back. She didn't know how he would respond. Would he think she's too forward? Would he say no? What an embarrassment. If, she were, if he were to say no, then what would she do? Where would she glean in the fields anymore? Because truly, this would be so awkward. How could she glean anywhere near him? They would have to get out of town. It would be so embarrassing. But she did what God's word said. And then when she's talking that night, and we talked about this before, so I'm going rapidly over it. She and Boaz are talking, and he says, I want to marry you. And he will give his reasons why. And she says, will you marry me? And they're like, okay, let's do this. But he is so oriented to following the word of God. Such an honest man, he says, but there's another relative who has first dibs, who is in front of me. And we're going to have to go to him first of all. We're not going to sneak away and elope. We're not going to be dishonest and not make him aware of the situation. Which, by the way, if I get the sense right, in chapter 4, that other relative was not aware of it. He wasn't aware of the property being available. He wasn't aware of the situation. And they could have easily just done it and nobody would be the wiser. But according to the word of God, there had to be this orderliness done. And so they do it honestly, doing what the Word of God tells them to do, even though they don't know how it's going to turn out. Remember we talked about it, the very last phrase or so of chapter 3, where Ruth's mom-in-law says to her, she says, you just need to sit still, you know, and he says, until you know how the matter will fall, she's just got to trust. Trust you're doing what is right according to the Word of God. Now you got to leave the results up to God. And so here are two individuals who are following the Word of God and leaving the results to him. Now, when he does that, what he's going to do is follow through with what he understands to be the teachings of Scripture. He's got to get elders to do it. 
And he's got to get the people. According to Deuteronomy 25, they have to gather together the city elders. Typically, they would gather at the city gate. We read about that. Where we read that section where he says he went up to the gate. What it means is go to the place where people would gather. This is where they would do their business. This is where you would do all of your legal transactions. So he goes to the gate, sat himself down, and he makes the other man aware. Verse 1. Just like he's supposed to. In verse 2, it talks about how there's 10 men there, and that's about the time that they come by. And so as they do this, he and the other relatives there, and he comes and he informs the other relative about the property. Watch how he says it. And, and, and as we're going through, it's just interesting. Keep in your mind, I wonder how Boaz, what he's thinking. He wants to marry her. How do I explain this so as to discourage the other relative? Do I twist it? He doesn't. He's very open, very honest, where he said to the kinsman, verse 3, Naomi that has come again out of the country of Moab, he says, she sold, sold a, parcel, a parcel of the land, which was our brother or our relative Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise unto you, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none other to redeem it besides you, and I am then the next one after you. And so, can you imagine, here he is, you're talking about it, and you're trying to keep in your own excitement. You're trying not to give away, don't buy it, don't buy it, don't buy it. But I'm telling you about it. But I don't want you to buy it, I don't want you to buy it. You know, it's kind of like you get this job offer, somebody calls you, and they say, hey, I have a good job for you, you only have to work 10 hours a week. Your pay is going to be a million a year, and you've got 11 months vacation. Yeah, and you're saying trying to keep cool and calm. What else? <laughs> yeah, you try, you, there, there's Boaz. He's just trying to keep himself in control. And he's thinking, okay, yo, I, I got to trust God. I just got to trust God. And then he hears those words. I'll buy it. No, you don't want to buy it. That's not what he says out loud. But can you imagine in his heart? That's what he says. No, you don't. You don't want to buy it. And so then he adds more detail to it. Then he says, okay, Boaz said, what day that you buy the field of the hand of Naomi, you must buy it also. You must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And so he makes it very clear. You know, when that guy said, yes, I want to buy it, his, his heart sank to his toes. And he says, well, listen, if you want to buy it, and he emphasizes several things with this must. He emphasizes you got to marry Ruth. He emphasizes you have to have a child by her. And he emphasizes then later on you have to give the land away. You're buying land that you're going to give to this child when the child gets old. You're not going to keep it. It's not going to be a part of your inheritance. And when he described Ruth, what did he add? She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. And so the man then who wants to buy the land, all of a sudden there's a stuttering and a stammering. It's in the, it's in the Hebrew. It's not in the English. No, it's, it's there. The kinsman says, um, uh, um, uh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Um, um, gulp, redeem you the right to yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I, I'm not so sure how this was expressed and how he said, but why do you think he didn't want to buy it? He wanted to buy it, but then all of a sudden he doesn't want to buy it. Why would that be? 
because there was a woman. <laughs> that's that's part of it. You know, that just sounds so bad. <laughs> what do you think? He has to give it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything you're saying, you know, you just say, okay, maybe, maybe when he realized I have to support a family, maybe he was he was stretching his budget. Yeah, you know, maybe I don't know. But then he says, okay, and maybe we don't know this. Maybe he was already married. You mean I got to bring another woman into? No offense, ladies. I got to bring another woman into the house. How would that play with my wife? We don't know that. We don't know. We don't know if when he said, Ruth the Moabitess, if that just went, no, I'm a Jew, I'm a good Jew, and the only non-Jew that's good is a dead non-Jew. Maybe he had that mentality. Maybe he wanted nothing to, he was highly prejudiced against the Moabites. Maybe he didn't want to risk his reputation because of that. Maybe he wasn't prejudiced himself, but he knew what could happen in the community. Maybe, maybe he didn't want to raise a half-breed child. I'm not going to raise some kid that's not my kid. Maybe, maybe it was, you know, that idea, and, and superstitious societies, maybe if I marry that woman, same thing could happen to me that happened to her first husband. You know, maybe, maybe he didn't want to give up the land later on. Maybe that's what he means about risk the inheritance. I, I buy property that I got to give to somebody who's not even going to, it's not going to benefit me. It goes to another family, a relative, but another family. We don't know. We don't know. But I can guarantee this, that when the man said, Boaz, you buy it, that Boaz went, yes, he was excited. Okay. Again, that's in the Hebrew. No, it's not in the Hebrew, but it's there. Okay. Just the sense of it, Boaz is excited. Boaz is enthused. Now, let's ask this, okay? Why does Boaz want to marry Ruth? Why, why is, we know, we know this reasons. We know from the text, he trusted her. He trusted that she was not somebody who was just a foreigner coming through and trying to get into the land and get money. She wasn't like that at all, okay? He says, you know, I hope God blesses you, chapter 2, verse 12, under whose wings you have put yourself. So he believes she's a genuine believer and really committed. He knows that she has taken care of Naomi and everybody's talking about how you are taking care of Naomi. You're a woman of high character. In fact, what does he call her later on? He says, you are a virtuous woman. When he comments about her in chapter 3, verse 11. We know this as well, that when she came and proposed, he makes this comment. He says, you have shown me great kindness in coming to me instead of going after younger men. So he appreciates what affection she has done towards him and the attention she has given. We know that he is not anybody who is prejudiced. He is not um, bringing up her Moabitic past. In fact, do you, do you wonder why he was like that? In, in the rest of the story that we're given, we are given some details down at the very end that might explain this, where you go to the very end of the chapter, verse 18, where it says, I'm going to do it in verse 17. There is a son born unto Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, 
and big name begat another big name, big name, big name. You can read those names, okay? What you have is something very insightful. Okay, just for a tidbit of detail here. He gives you the genealogy all the way, and we got Boaz towards the bottom. Matthew chapter 1 records the same genealogy, but the the spelling may be a little bit different. But it's the same people. And where where you and I look is say, okay... Who did Salmon, who says, Salmon begat Boaz, who was Salmon married to? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 1, he was married to Rahab. Anybody remember a Rahab in the Bible? Rahab, what's her nickname? The harlot, okay? Is this that same Rahab, could she possibly be the biological mother of Boaz? If we, take the, if we take these genealogies for what they are, that there's no misses, no nothing, here's what you end up with. Where Salmon and Rahab, that was in 1450. Where David is, when we get the times where David becomes king, we're talking about a period of time that's like 360 years. Now again, Boaz is a, is a little bit before that, less time. Could it be that... These are people with the same names, but different people. You know, there was a different Rahab, in other words. That's, that is a possibility. Okay, is that, is that a possible? I think it's remote by comparing the two genealogies. Could it be that um, the possibility that it is, it is exact, one generation after generation after generation, and that the men, when they bore these sons, they were a little bit older. Is that possible in the Bible? That they're bearing children in their latter years? Yeah, that's a possibility. Could it be that maybe they didn't add every single name, but there could be an ellipsis of a name? Did they ever do that in genealogies? They did. There were some times that that happened. It wasn't the most common practice. The bottom line is this, though. Okay, Rahab is in his background. Rahab the harlot, who comes from the city of Jericho, she is in Boaz's background. Whether it be the mom or grandmother... She is in his, in his ancestry. So why would he be open to another Gentile being in the family? Because it happened. And somebody he knew, somebody he loved, if it's within a generation or two, and it was no issue. It was no problem. And so he may have responded very simply by just saying, hey, listen... I am going to take this woman. I don't see it as a threat to my family. My family already has it in our bloodline. And the bottom line is, why would anybody risk reputation, whatever, you know, give up property that you're going to buy and give it to somebody else's, your child that you're raised for somebody else? Bottom line is, he loves her. He has to have some affection, willing to sacrifice for her. And so here you have that story that they're trusting the Lord. They're trusting the Lord, following the word of God. And so Boaz is trusting the Lord. He comes in and he says, okay, you don't want to buy the property. Here's what I would do. I will buy it. And so it goes on a little bit further. And it says now in verse 7, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing properties. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. This was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he drew off his shoe. Boaz said to the elders and to the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, 
all that was Kilion's, all that was Malon's, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead could not be cut off from among his brethren, from the gate of his place. You are witnesses of this this day. So he's going to follow the customs. Now, why is it that they plucked off the shoe and they would give it away? I don't know. We have no explanation. But maybe it's because of that idea that wherever your sandal shall tread, that's going to be your property. Maybe it was just symbolic of saying this idea that I am not going to tread on your property and lay claim to it. I think that's all it was. Beyond that, you probably have more insight. You can share that at your time. Okay? But he's giving up his right to wherever his foot would be. Your property now, you've got it. So what he does is Boaz pays the required amount whatever it was, for the land. And Boaz makes sure that according to the law, he's following the law, there are witnesses. He emphasizes this a couple times. We want to make sure that there's witnesses here, just as the law required. He, fear, he clearly is following the word of God in what he's doing and his culture of his day and saying, we're going to do this the way God said we're supposed to do it or as our culture has exposed, uh, expanded upon that, but he's trusting the Lord. We said God rewards those who trust in him enough that they do whatever God's word says, that they run to him. Can I add another thought here? That they treat others the way God wants them to be treated. That he is going to respond, Boaz, to other people the way God wants him to respond. Not just trusting the Lord, but treating others right. Loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, but also loving others as you love yourself. And so he's fulfilling that. We see that in the story that he shows compassion on Ruth. That he's willing to be gracious to her, doesn't hold her background against it. He shows compassion for Naomi. He's willing to provide for this aunt this relative of his, and bring her into his home as well. He shows compassion even towards the first Goel. According to Deuteronomy 25, it was allowed if the woman came to the man and said, you need to marry me, raise up a child, and and he refused to do it. She could tear him down publicly. She could slap him or spit in his face, one of the two, and then they could could decry and, and rip apart this guy. Boaz doesn't do it. Boaz doesn't do what is permitted because he is going to be a gracious individual. He doesn't ridicule the man. They just go through a transaction and they move on and he lives peaceably. What happens as a result? We say that God blesses, God rewards those who trust in him. How did, how did they get rewarded? Well, you know, some of it is your story. If you're trusting God... God is rewarding you, maybe the same way, maybe in different ways. Now, in their story, the rewards come this way. Let me back up and let me show you something out of the rewards that are very interesting. If you go to the beginning of the story and you start walking all the way through, one of the themes from the beginning of the book, and we've talked about it almost every week, one of the themes is God's leading, God's providence, God's sovereignty, how God puts things together that are amazing. That all of a sudden, God's authority, there's a famine in the land because the people were doing that which was right in their own eyes. Then, God's, God's authority, he could chasten one of his own children who flees from him, who goes out of country. And God still has that ability, that right, that authority, that providence, that sovereignty. How God can stop the famine in the land of Israel, or he could start it up, but he stops it. 
And he says, okay, at about that same time that there's the stopping of the famine, there's the loss of the men. In what order, altogether, I don't know. But when they come, the ladies come to the point where they're destitute, Israel already has fruit going on. The famine is stopped. And then it so happens that they come back just at harvest time when they can glean the fields, when, when they have the ability to semi-take care of themselves as widows. It just so happens, tongue-in-cheek, that Ruth randomly goes to Boaz's field, who is their relative, who can, qualifies as a kinsman redeemer. It just so happens he comes to the field this same day. It just so happens that she has never had a child in the period of time that she was married. It just so happens that Boaz never was married through all the years, and he's an older man by now. Okay, How old? I don't know. But he's older than the young man, and he's never been married. Just so happened that God has kept her childless and kept him in a single mode. It just so happens that we come to chapter 4, and we see how God rewards at times by still putting things behind the scene that just work together. Let me illustrate what I mean. It just so happens that you have ten men coming at harvest time to the city. Where would most of the men be when they're harvesting? Where were they the night before? They were in the fields. But it just so happens he can find ten men to do business. It just so happens that even though it's harvest time, that all of a sudden the relative comes into town at that same time, that he's got the ten men. Can you see the hand of God working details at those moments? How God sometimes puts you right next door to a certain individual, brings you to a certain doctor who has a certain skill set. I look at it in situations in our own family. A couple of years ago, you were praying for my daughter who developed a tumor on her jaw. And in that time period that, that it, was, it was starting and then it was required uh, severe surgeries, they just so happened to move from Arizona to Michigan. And then it just so happened that they found this. And it just so happened that one of the four people in the world who specializes in this tumor was in Michigan doing his research. That's a God thing. That's how God works in your life. How God has manipulated and arranged things that you and, you and I, we don't understand some of those things from moment to moment. But how God knows ahead of time. And that's, to me, that's a reward because God cares for us. That God loves us. That he is, he is guiding our everyday steps. Aren't you glad that he is a father who cares that much? So we trust in him. He rewards this way. He rewards by giving them the desire of their hearts. Do you remember what we read later on? It's written that delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. We read that text and most of us, we love the last part. God, you promised to give me the desires of my heart. But there's a quantitative phrase at the beginning. For God to give us the desires of the heart, what must we do? We need to be delighting in him. We need to be trusting in him. We need to be following his word. Did Boaz and Ruth do that? Absolutely. And as they followed, did what God wanted, and they didn't know, would the man say yes? Would, he, would she end up with somebody that she didn't want to be? 
They have to trust the Lord. They're delighting in the Lord, and God gave them the desires of the heart, which according to this passage is them for each other. That's a reward by God. A reward by God by giving them a great blessing. You know, sometimes, sometimes we parents wondered about the great blessing of children at 3 a.m. in the morning. Okay. But we know it's true. We know that this text is so true that God's uh, child that's sent by God, they are a heritage of the Lord. Here's a woman who was married for a period of time, didn't have a child. She marries Boaz, they have a child. It is a gift from God. It is a blessing from the Lord Almighty who is providing, who is taking care of them. We know as well that these two enjoy a commendation in the eyes of other people. I understand that we don't serve God just so other people notice us. That, that's not, and that wasn't Ruth and Boaz. However, is it helpful at times to hear from others that, hey, you're doing a good job? No? Yes? Is it good to have a testimony that stands out and other people notice? Yes. Yes. And what happens to these folk? Well, we know that others respond to Ruth and Boaz and they commend them. They think highly of them. Notice what's written in this text. What's stated about them. Look at verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders. It's the town meeting now. And they said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah be famous in Bethlehem. Let your house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, and of the seed which the Lord gives thee of this young woman. The town is behind them, is approving them even though she's a Moabite woman. Watch a little bit further. The child is born. What do the older ladies of the town say? The woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law which loves thee is better to you than seven sons that were born of him. And Naomi took the child, etc., etc. They are commended. And you consider, and Ruth is considered better than seven boys in that culture. That's a really high compliment. Tremendously high compliment in that day. But you, can I add something to it? Solomon builds a temple decades and decades and decades later on. He builds a temple, and when he builds the temple itself, they put two bronze t- uh, pillars out front. And when we read later on, he did something with these pillars. It says he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple and he set up in the right pillar and called the name Jachin or however you pronounce it. Do you know what he called the other pillar? He calls the other pillar Boaz. This was a commendation to his great, 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 grand, whatever, great grandparent. So you have this recognition in generations after generation and the big blessing that they don't realize But the people who are hearing the story when it's being written by Samuel, it's at the time, it's clearly, they they can give the genealogy all the way to David. David's alive. And this is being written, and Ruth and Boaz are put in the lineage of King David. That's a high commendation for the two of them. And not only are they in the lineage of King David, which in their culture, being in somebody's lineage is important, whose ultimate lineage are they in? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. One of those select peoples 
that God worked in their lives to bring his son to this earth. So they experience all these commendations. Now, I said at the beginning, there's two lessons. The first lesson was God rewards those who trust in him. The second lesson ends up with the lady that becomes the focus at the end of the chapter. The second lesson goes this way. God restores those who turn to him. God restores those who turn to him. The reason I'm saying that is the story starts with Ruth. And the story ends, I'm sorry, it uh, it starts with Naomi. And it ends with Naomi. She's the main character with her husband at the beginning. She's the main character. In fact, what do the ladies say when they say a son is born? They don't say a son is born unto Ruth, who did all the work. Who do they say the son is born to? Naomi. Naomi is the key person at the end of the story. So what do we learn from her? Well, let's just walk through just a few moments more and we walk through. At the beginning of the account, what is she like by the end of chapter 1? She is a woman who went out of the land of Israel. She left with her husband in disobedience. She loses her husband and sons. The story goes on and she says, the hand of the Lord is against me. She says this comment to her daughter-in-laws, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She makes the comment, the Lord has testified against me. The Lord has afflicted me. No longer call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitter. That's the woman. That's this old woman that you wouldn't want to have lunch with at that moment. She is just a miserable woman. And probably rightly so. I mean, she's experienced the discipline of the Lord. She's lost family. This is tough. And yet at the end of the story, when we come to the end of chapter 4, what do we have? She's back in the land of promise. We have, she's got a kinsman redeemer. We read it in verse 14. The Lord bless you because you have a kinsman redeemer. She now has a family, a family that cares for her and she cares for the family. She's restored in the sense that they say to her, you've got a daughter-in-law that is better than seven sons. We miss the importance of that phrase because we don't think the way they did back in Bible days. In back in Bible days, was it preferable to have a son or a daughter? It was a son. And have seven of them? The perfect number of kids, right? And so they're saying, seven boys. She's better than seven. She, she's got to be thrilled to her heart. Thrilled to her heart. And then she has a grandson. Is, <laughs> are grandkids better than children? Um, we don't. <laughs> so... So you have this, she, she not only, the passage, not only does she have a grandson, it says she becomes a nurse. She becomes the teacher, the guardian to this grandson. Think of where that puts, well, here we can do this one. We can do this thought that kids talking to his grandma, it's yucky outside. There's no such thing as bad weather, Nelson, just the wrong clothes. How come you know so much, grandma? Well, all grandmas know this stuff because it's on the grandma test. You have to know it or you can't be a grandma. Oh, I get it. If you don't pass the test, you become a grandpa. (laughs) 
And all the ladies say, yeah, yeah, okay. Think this through. Think this through, okay? Naomi is the, base, is the primary teacher to the boy. That doesn't mean Ruth isn't a good teacher and isn't a good mom. But how much of the Jewish culture does she really know? How much of the law does she know compared to Naomi? Ruth is a babe in the Lord. Naomi, she's known the Lord a long time. She grew up there. Her being able to influence, to teach, is on par with some of you who have years of walking with the Lord, seeing answered prayers, seeing how God is guided, that you could pass on to a second generation beyond you some of life's most critical lessons. As you are winding down, you are able to pass on a legacy to those children, those grandchildren, those great-grandchildren that could make all the difference in their lives to assist the parents by giving what additional knowledge, understanding, insights into the Word of God that you possess. That's Naomi's privileged spot. That's why the story basically says, as the ladies say, Blessed be you of the Lord. If you're going to put one word over chapter, the end of chapter 4, it's this word. It's joy. It's joy. It starts with bitterness, but as she came back and turns her life back to the Lord, what does God do? God restores her. God puts her in this prominent spot where God, God works. You know what it stands out to me more than anything else as I was meditating on this whole thing? It was just this simple thought, how God can rewrite the last chapters. How God can rewrite the last chapter, or should we put it this way? God can rewrite the next chapter of our lives. For every single one of us here, if we make sure that we are following the Lord, He can put into the next chapter trials, troubles, difficulties, but joy. Great joy. The joy, the peace that I leave with you that the world cannot give, I will give to you. But you need to make sure you're right with the Lord. If you're not, you need to return to the Lord. When you return to the Lord, then the Lord can restore and give you a life of great joy as you then continue to trust in the Lord.